Great. Good morning again, everyone. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 13. You thought we would never get through chapter 12, did you? <laughs> and now we're going to cover the first 10 verses in one sitting. We'll see. We'll do our best. Revelation chapter 13. There's two chapters when you talk about the book of Revelation that pique people's interest. It's typically Revelation chapter 13 and Revelation chapter 20. <clears throat> um, we'll begin our study in Revelation 13 this morning. Let's ask the Lord to lead us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the warning that you give the church regarding um, its enemy, the nature of its enemy, the character of it, and what we can expect. And Father, we thank you that you um know the beginning from the end that you have declared the beginning from the end you spell out the enemy of the church here very clearly for us so that we might understand that you are sovereign over the enemy and that you have already given us victory we ask that you would help us this morning as we study your word lord guard us against um fantastic ideas that would stray us and cause us to stray from your word that we will be faithful to it. We ask these things in your name. Amen. <clears throat> so chapter 12 explains the why of the nature, if you will, of our spiritual warfare. <clears throat> Excuse me. Why does the dragon hate God? Why does the dragon hate the woman? Why does the dragon hate the church? Chapter 12 lays out the why. And there is a continuation of the thought as chapter 12 ends, if you look at verse 17, it says, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So chapter 13 begins, and we're tempted to think, well, this is just something completely disconnected from what we just studied. But it's not. It's a continuation of the thought. There is a connector thought here. If chapter 12 explains the why, chapter 13 explains the how. So Satan is at war with the church, the offspring of the woman. The woman is the church. How does he make war with her? That's really what chapter 13 lays out for us. It's a detailed description of two distinct beasts, beasts, if you will, two servants. We might call them members of the church of Satan. There's a parallel in, in Revelation chapter seven, 17 showing this same beast from a little bit of a different angle. In Revelation 17, there is a harlot who rides on the back of this same beast that we see in Revelation chapter 13. But what have we learned so far? Well, recently in chapter 12, we learned that the woman is the church. And where is the church? Anybody remember? When we last saw the woman, where was she? In the wilderness, yes. She is in exile. She is a pilgrim. She is a sojourner. She is a wanderer with a higher destination. She does not belong here. That is, this is not her home. The world, this earth, is not the forever home, if you will, of the woman. Satan, the great counterfeiter, tries to judge the church. How does he do that? Well, 
we read in the book of Genesis that, that the wickedness of man had become so great that one man and his family were spared and God judged the world. How? How did he judge the first judge the world in the book of Genesis with the flood? What does Satan do? He tries to judge the church with a flood. Talked about that flood last week. It's a picture of great deception, but she is rescued. She's caught up on eagle's wings. I finally got it right. She is spared from the flood because, by the way, as we studied, there is no condemnation to them What who are in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> Satan has lost his stature, his stature as the accuser of the church. He is not heard. All the accusations of the wicked one have been made null and void. How? By the blood of the land by which they overcame. Secondly, we saw that there is a reoccurring theme that is a hijacking, if you will, or an imitation of satanic deception. This will continue. I want you to see here as we study chapter 12, now that we're in 13, we were introduced to the dragon. Okay. Secondly, chapter 13, we will be introduced to two beasts. I want you to see the parallel here. Satan in his great impersonation, his character assassination, if you will, of God or his attempt to, is a great deceiver, but he's he's not original. He's a counterfeiter. He is an imitator. So we see the picture of the dragon. We see a picture of the first beast that we'll look at in the first 10 verses. Then we'll see next week, Lord willing, a picture of the second beast. <clears throat> All three of those have something in common. It's three. It's a picture of the Trinity, but it's an unholy Trinity. Satan fancies himself as the father. The first beast we will see has great similarities in description to who? The son. The third beast we'll see has characteristics of the spirit of God. So we'll look at that. <clears throat> but there is a, a reoccurring theme, if you I want to read you a quote from Vern Poitras on the book of Revelation, the picture of the, uh, the counterfeiting parallels. The beast is a counterfeit of Christ. Note the following parallels. The beast is an image of Satan who brought him forth just as Christ, <coughs> excuse me, is the exact image of God begotten by the Father. The beast has 10 crowns while Christ has many crowns. The beast has blasphemous names written on him while Christ has worthy names. The dragon has given the beast his power, his throne, and great authority, just as Christ has power, a throne, and authority from the Father. The beast has a healed fatal wound. Did you pick up on that as we read? Counterfeiting Christ's resurrection. Worship is directed both to the dragon and the beast, just as Christians worship both the Father and the Son. The beast attracts the worship of the whole world, just as Christ is to be worshipped universally. The beast utters blasphemies while Christ utters the praises of God. The beast makes war against the saints while Christ makes war against the beast. Satan himself attempts to counterfeit God the Father. He engages in a mock creation in which he brings forth his image out of chaotic waters. We'll see that as we get started here this morning in, in this picture. <clears throat> Remember, I said something way back in our very first 
message, chapter one of Revelation, Satan has two, two primary means of operation. He uses seduction and destruction. These two beasts will, will show us exactly what that looks like. The first beast represents destruction, that is brute force. The second beast represents seduction, that is great deception. These two beasts are in league with one another because they are birds of the same feather. <clears throat> so what does the first beast look like? I'm going to go quickly through this because I intend to cover all 10 verses this morning. So um, I wanted to give that to you in advance so you could see it. But there are there are eight aspects that, that Scripture lays out for us regarding the beast, what it looks like. In verse 1, it begins, I saw a beast rising out of the sea. <clears throat> what is a beast? Well, the Greek word therion is never used in Scripture to describe a clean animal. When we went through the book of Leviticus, we, we had very specific instruction on what animals were clean, what were unclean, what was allowed to be sacrificed, what was not allowed to be sacrificed. <clears throat> the beast here is a wild brute animal. Now remember, this is symbolic. When we studied the dragon, the dragon is symbolic for who? Devil. The devil. So the, the scripture is using symbolism here. It's using imagery to relate to us truth, but it's telling us something very important about the nature of this, this entity, if you will. It is beast. It is a beast in nature. It's unclean. The scripture paints the beast as symbolically, not as it appears, because it will be adored. It will be worshipped. It will be loved. But as it actually is in its nature. In other words, we're, we're going to see the beast as he is, as it is, not as the world sees it. How, how does the world see it? Well, Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 11 that Satan does not present himself as he truly is, does he? Scripture says he is um, disguised, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. In the Greek, that means shapeshifter. Satan shifts his shape to fit the moment. And when he wants to appear, um, by the way, he appears as an angel of light to those who are looking for light or expecting light. I would argue that it's talking about his representation in front of the church, because in the same chapter, it deals with false apostles, deceitful workmen, those who are advertising the bait and concealing the hook. But, but the beast is not what it appears to be. Scripture for the church, for those that have ears to hear, is laying open and exposed the nature, the character of the beast so that we, the church, can see it. But the world is not going to see what we see. I want you to see, secondly, under its, its uh, origin, verse 1, I saw a wild beast rising out of the sea. Genesis 1-2, the scripture says the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And what happened? God created land and he created the universe. The picture here is of Satan 
creating the beast. He's trying to take the place of God the Father as creator. It's an act of faux creation. <clears throat> the dragon here gives life to the beast, comes from the sea. The second beast will come from the land, but it's a picture of, of the whole earth. Um, some of you guys know that I like to work with wood. I don't have much time to do it, but I thoroughly enjoy it anyway. It's uh, who said sawdust is man glitter. <laughs> yeah, it's it's true. But I love working with wood. But what I what I hate is faux furniture. You guys know what I mean? Furniture made of what? Particle board, press board. It's fake. It's phony. But it has the appearance of being real. So the deal is, in our house, if I can't build it myself, if we have to buy something, it can't be particle board. It, it doesn't always work out that way. But we see the, we hear the word faux, F-A-U-X, fake, phony. This is an act that we're seeing here of phony creation, Satan trying to usurp the place of the father. So where does this beast come from? Well, Revelation 11, we saw this. A few, a few weeks ago, as we studied Revelation 11, verse 7, and when they, the two witnesses, have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. This is the same beast in Revelation 13. <clears throat> we were first introduced to this beast back in Revelation 11, but it talks about how it will make war on the saints, the two witnesses. Remember, that's the church as well. Just another picture for it. And for a short time, the tribes and the peoples and the nations of this earth will gaze on their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. They celebrate the seeming demise of the church, the overthrow of the saints. Also, I want you to see that the many waters, what are they? When the beast rises out of the waters, what is what is the picture of the many waters? Well, again, let's use scripture to interpret scripture. In Revelation 17, which gives us another view of this beast, it says in verse 1, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. Verse 15 of chapter 17 says, The angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitude, multitudes and nations and languages. The waters that the beast rises out of, what is it talking about? It's a sea of humanity. The beast rises out of the sea of humanity. It is of the nature of humanity. But what is that nature? Isaiah 57, 20 says, the wicked are like what? The troubled sea, the King James Version says. They're like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. Its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace says my God for the wicked. Secondly, from verse one, we see its nature. And I'm going to try and move quick on this, so try and stay with me. It says that we have 10 horns, seven heads, 10 diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. Its nature belongs to or is a mirror image of the dragon. <clears throat> the Lord Jesus is the image of what? The father. The beast is an image of the devil. 
Revelation 12.3, why do we say it's a mirror image? Notice what it says in Revelation 12.3 regarding the dragon. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. What does it say about the beast? The beast has ten horns with seven heads. It's like an inverted picture there. So the beast is of the nature and the character of the dragon. It is the servant of Satan. You guys remember that movie, Wizard of Oz, right? What was behind the curtain? You heard the great big booming voice of the wizard. What was behind the curtain? Just another man. Behind the curtain of the beast is the devil. That's what scripture is telling us here. And it's not as things appear. Ephesians 6, 12, Paul says we wrestle not against what? In other words, it's not what we see. We see the effects of the beast. And we'll talk about what the beast is. We see that. And we think that's our direct enemy. But what is empowering the beast? What is behind the beast? What is behind the curtain, if you will, is the dragon. <clears throat> Its horns are symbolic of power. Revelation 5, 6 gives us a picture of the Lamb of God. And with the, the description of the Lamb, it says in Revelation 5, 6, the Lamb has seven horns with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. This is symbolism, again, to explain <laughs> that there is power. But again, it's trying to replicate the Lord Jesus. That should tell us something about its nature. It also says that the this beast has diadems or crowns. What are the crowns a picture of? Kingship. Kings wear crowns, don't they? This is a symbolic picture of competing kingship with the sovereign Lord Jesus. Revelation 19, his eyes like a flame of fire and on his head, what? Many crowns or diadems. This is speaking of the Lord Jesus. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Revelation 19, 16, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Again, the picture here of this beast is his impersonation of the sun. <clears throat> Can you see why there might be some confusion and deception? To the world, he looks a lot like Jesus. Thirdly, the description that we're given in verse two, and the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. Now, where do we go with that? Well, we go back to where we read of that originally, which is Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, Daniel has a vision. I want you to see this. This is important. Daniel 7, verse 1, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. And he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. What is the great sea? Humanity tossing, casting its mire and its muck. The four winds of heaven stir up the great sea, and four great beasts come out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Now, if we compare this vision that he has, it's an overlap of the vision that he gives that Nebuchadnezzar has in his dream in Daniel chapter two, where we see the kingdoms 
in a statue. He says the, the, the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. This is a picture of Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given it. Behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. This is a picture of the Medes and the Persians. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. Verse 6, And after this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard. This is a picture of, of Alexander's Hellenistic regime, the Greek regime. With four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given it. After this, I saw in the night visions, behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. Who's this beast? Everybody know? Rome. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before and it had 10 horns hmm sounds familiar i considered the horns and behold there came up among them another horn a little one before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots and behold in his horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things now how does the vision of daniel differ from the vision of john <clears throat> john's giving this beast the same characteristics of the four beasts that we see in Daniel 7, except for one thing, they're all combined. It's one beast, but it's got a combination of the beasts of Daniel. So what is scripture communicating to us? Is, is John not aware of what Daniel wrote? He, is. he absolutely is. What is, he, what is he teaching us here? The combination of the beast communicates the truth that this is a picture of all of the world's kingdoms, right? Daniel deals with one kingdom in succession after another. These are kingdoms of men, real kings, real leaders that succeed each other, followed up by one that is more terrible than all the others, which is Rome. The beast or the combination of this beast communicates the truth that this is all of the world's kingdoms symbolized here. This is a picture of, of the kingdoms of this world empowered by who? Satan. What did Satan tempt Christ with? In Luke 4, 5, and 7, it says, And the devil took him up and showed him what? One of the kingdoms of the world? All the kingdoms of the world. And what did he say about that? He showed it to him in a moment of time, and he said to him, Jesus, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to who? To me, Satan. And I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. What is the picture here? The picture is the kingdoms of this world and their power. And, and I want to give you a working definition of the beast. I skipped that, and I apologize. What is the beast? What is the beast? The beast is a picture of the perverted state. Okay? The beast is a picture of the perverted state. This is the picture of force. What do we see in scripture regarding the use of force in this beast? Well, 
we saw, and Daniel lived through this, didn't he? What happened to Daniel when he refused to bow the knee? Lion's den. He went into the lion's den. Furnace. Who do you think? Yes, and the furnace. Who do you think empowered that? State. Absolutely. So here we have the state who in Romans 13 says he bears not the sword in vain. That sword is brought against good instead of evil, and it's been perverted. Now, it, it does not mean, it does not mean that um, all government is bad. It's not what I'm saying. I would ask you and encourage you to go back and reread Romans 13 and ask yourself the question, does Romans 13 describe the government of Rome or does it describe what the government of Rome ought to be? There's a huge difference because as Paul is writing through the Romans, the Roman government is not a friend of the church, is it? It's not a friend of the church, but Paul very, very interestingly writes in Romans 13 about what government God has ordained, what it ought to be. It is not an endorsement to the Roman Christian, the Christian under the Roman tyranny, that they are to obey in worshiping of Caesar, but it is a rebuke of Rome. If you read Romans 13, it's telling you this is what the Roman government ought to do and how it is falling down on its responsibilities. It is for the punishment of what? Evildoers. Who are they punishing? Well, under Nero and under Domitian, they were punishing Christians because they would not worship Caesar. But here's the good news. And as Daniel was troubled in his visions, Daniel 2, 44 and 45, imagine standing before Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man on the face of the earth at this time, and saying to Nebuchadnezzar what he says. But here's Daniel. He says, in the days of those kings, we see these four beasts, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. Concurrent, listen to this, concurrent with the rule of these kingdoms, this beast, God will set up a kingdom. And in those days, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. The encouragement that Daniel got out of that vision is he's seeing these beasts in his mind. What a horrific picture. And the scripture says he was troubled. It agitated him. It worried him. But the picture and what Daniel rested in was the fact that there was another kingdom hewn out of the mountain that would destroy all these other kingdoms and crush them. Fourth thing I want you to see regarding the beast is its power. It says, and to the beast, verse two, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. What kind of a power, what kind of power is this beast wielding? Well, it is the power of the sword. It's the power of the sword. What did, what did John tell the seven churches? In, in Revelation 2, verse 8, he said, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich in the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. 
Listen to this, verse 10 of chapter 2. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. For 10 days you will have tribulation. What prison is that? That spiritual prison? What prison is the devil throwing the church into? It's a prison of the government. Rome. The power that this beast is wielding is the power of the sword, but it's perverted. I want you to see the fifth thing is this, its history. Verse 3, and one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. What is this a picture of? Stealing directly from the picture of the resurrection of Christ. Again, counterfeit. Its mortal wound is healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. This is an imitation of Christ. Read Revelation 5, 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven heads or seven horns with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. The lamb standing as though it had been slain. It's a picture of the resurrected lamb. This is a, a mockery, if you will. But I want you to see that the beast is far more than a who. It is a what. And if it's accurate to say that this fourth beast is Rome, and I think it is, it's also accurate to say that it is concurrent in the last days. What do I mean by that? We see the picture of 42 months here. What is it talking about regarding um, regarding the wound that was healed, but but is the or the wound the mortal wound, but is now healed? I want you to read. I want to read something for you real quick. Um, a quote from Dennis Johnson on this. This is what is commonly thought of that this verse is talking about. The counterfeit, the counterfeit resurrection of the beast's horn evokes amazement and worship from all who dwell on the earth, whose names are not inscribed before the world's foundation in, or before the, the world's foundation in the book of life that belongs to the slain lamb. This wound, paradoxically lethal and yet healed, is associated by many commentators with rumors that circulated throughout the Roman Empire in the social and political turmoil that followed the mysterious disappearance or suicide of the Emperor Nero in 68. Quote, Nero was not really dead. He had gone into hiding in Parthia and would return at the head of a vast Parthian army to take revenge on Rome. Because Nero was worshipped, there were many that looked at him as coming back from the dead. And it was commonly taught and believed at that time that Nero was was essentially resurrected. I don't I don't really see that in this. That's possible. But one thing I think that is far more likely as I study this and dig into this, and there are no I'm I'm alone. There are no commentators that 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 said this. When did the Roman Empire cease to exist? It you history didn't. history buffs. It didn't. Well, in 476. It's still around. Yes. <laughs> it it exactly. In 476 AD. By the way, if you look up uh, Encyclopedia Britannica, they call it CE. Like what is CE? 
Common era. Yeah, Common Era. What? Well, what? BCE is before Common Era. CE is Common Era. Well, what happened between those two? The the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, which is what we've tracked time against. BC and AD. I still call it BC and AD. But the last emperor, quote unquote, was in 476 AD. What happened to the Roman Empire? If we believe, and I do, as I the more I study this, when we, we talk about the, the 42 months, um, the uh, three and a half years, if that is the inner advental time, and I believe that it is, the 1260 days, then this beast, according to scripture, is concurrent in that time. Well, what happened to the Roman Empire? It's still here. In 600, the first pope, Pope Gregory the Great, was was uh, inaugurated. It was about 100 and some years where things were kind of quiet. But then we had the ushering in of the Roman Catholic Church. Roman uh, Revelation chapter 17, verse 6 through 9 is another picture of this, but Here's the question. Who was persecuting the church at the time of John's writing? Why was John in exile? The mission sent him there on the island of Patmos. Here's something very interesting that I found. I'll get into this more next week as we talk about the second beast. But in the 1689, if you'll look that up, the 1689 London Baptist Confession in chapter 26, paragraph 4, it will tell you exactly what the reformers thought regarding the Roman Catholic Church. And what did they think? They say flat out, chapter 26 in the 1689 is dealing with the church. And they make a very plain statement that the, the Pope is not the head of the church. The Lord Jesus Christ is. He's usurping or taking the place of Christ as the vicar of Christ. And chapter 26 Paragraph four plainly states that he is the Antichrist. Now, there are a lot of churches who have taken that and said, well, mm, we should tear that out. That's a little controversial. And after all, we can't be very ecumenical with our Roman Catholic buddies if that's in there. That's kind of a, a no-go. You are the, how do you, where do you go from there? After you declare the Pope an Antichrist or the Antichrist, where do you go from there? It's hard to fellowship and break bread together. You can't. So who was hunting down the reformers? Rome. So all that to say, the beast that was and is not and yet is, Revelation chapter 17, verses 6 through 9, I, I think the mortal wound it's talking about and, and the the healing of that wound is really a picture of that. It it seemed to have a, a fatal death wound. Um, people talk about how Rome, the empire of Rome has fallen and what caused. There's books, tons and tons of books written on the demise of the Roman Empire. And I would argue it never left. It's just showing itself differently. Six, I want you to see it's worshipers. Verses four and verse eight. And they, the earth dweller, that is they, Worship the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. 
And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? I want you to see that the beast's reign is marked by idolatry and blasphemy. Who worships the beast? Now, there, we're going to talk next week about the mark of the beast. And, and the speculation that runs rampant is, what if I get the mark of the beast? I'm going to have to have the mark of the beast. Or I can't eat. I can't sleep. I can't live. And there's this mass hysteria and panic because of the mark of the beast. The people that have the mark of the beast are the people that are worshiping the beast. Who worships the beast? Verse 8, and all who dwell on the earth will worship the beast. Who is the earth dweller? Who is the earth dweller? It's the unbeliever. The earth dweller is the unregenerate. Those who are in the kingdom of darkness. And what do they say about the beast? Who is like the beast? There's nothing to compare the beast to. They're, they're deifying the beast. And if we were to praise God, one of the things that we talk about in our worship for God is his incomparability with everything else. There's nothing that we can compare God. God is like fill in the blank. He's incomparable. What they are saying about the beast, the earth dweller, is there is no one like the beast. They marvel at him. We're it. And it says they blaspheme. What is the blasphemy here that it's talking about? The, the word in the Greek to blaspheme means to kiss. Kiss the sun, lest you perish in the way. The picture there is to worship in the Psalms. To blaspheme here is to kiss the ground when prostrating before a superior, to worship, to fall down, to prostrate oneself, to adore on one's knees, to do obeisance. What did they tell Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? What must you do when the when the horn sounds? Worship. You must bow down. Of course, they didn't. The picture here is a picture of worship. This is state worship. Okay? What does state worship look like? Well, for the early church, who were they to worship? Now, Rome was full of idolatry. It had all sorts of gods, and Rome permitted all of those gods. What was dangerous about the Lord Jesus to Rome? Exclusivity. Exclusivity. There is one name under heaven whereby a man must be saved. There is one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians claimed exclusivity. Rome was like, look, you can worship whoever you want, but there is one supreme. Who is it? Caesar. State worship is nothing new. Nebuchadnezzar was at the top of the state. And what did he want? He wanted worship. What do we find as we study through the kings, the book of the kings? These men are idolatrous. They want to be at the pinnacle of the pyramid. Pharaoh, another example. We look at North Korea. Is he a god? 
He, he fancies himself as one. Little G, yes. yes. How about the chairman of the Communist Party in China? You Christians who worship God, the Lord Jesus Christ in China, there's a problem with that because you can't worship Jesus as supreme ruler and still pay obeisance to the chairman. But how about here? How do we view the state here? Is the state my dad? Is the state my God? Is, is the state my savior? We're shifting and trending that way. But here's a picture of worship of the state. And seventh, verse five, it's authority. The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Now we see that same picture again. Where have we seen 42 months, 1260 days, and three and a half years? In Revelation 11, we saw the two witnesses, right? The two witnesses did their witnessing for what? 42 months. This is showing us a picture of concurrence. These things are happening together. The church is witnessing while the church is in the wilderness in exile, and God is keeping her and maintaining her. But while that's happening, we see the dragon and his two beasts, and these are all concurrent in the same time. And I would argue this is the picture of the... the um, the inter-advent time. That is the picture between the Lord Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection, his first ascension, and his second coming. And the fact that it is pictured as three and a half years is to demonstrate to us that this is not an, an, an endless period of time. It's to encourage the church to remind us it's not seven years, it's three and a half years. It's been shortened. If we believe that the 42 months is emblematic of that period of time between the resurrection and the second coming, and I do, the more I study this, the more convinced I am of it. The beast is allowed to exercise authority from the time of Christ's departure to his return. There's not many things that really fit into that category. And, and you can read reformer after reformer after reformer that talk about Rome. But I want you to see that this is a picture of the world's system. Yes, Rome is a picture of that. But it is a picture of the world's system, the kingdoms of this world. We'll talk more about um, the Antichrist next week. But And there is no doubt that the beast here portrayed is Antichrist. Make no bones about that. But it is concurrent with the time of trouble for the church. Verse 8, remember, this is answering the how. How is Satan going to attack the church? Destruction and seduction. Its enemies, verse 8 or, or verse 6, it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies. Notice who it blasphemes. The beast is blaspheming God, and the beast is blaspheming God's dwelling. Now, what is God's dwelling according to Revelation chapter 11? Remember, we looked at the tabernacle. What was the picture of the tabernacle in Revelation chapter 11? Remember, it was given that the outer court would be trampled, but the inner court was protected. It's a picture of the church. The beast here blasphemes the name of God and his dwelling. And and. As we talk about the dwelling of God, don't mistake this for the physical temple because John makes it clear here in verse six. 
It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. That is, and he's clarifying what his dwelling is, those who dwell in heaven. The distinction that Revelation makes is, is two kinds of people, those who dwell in the earth and those who dwell in heaven. And verse 7 says, also it is allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given over to every tribe and people and language and nation. The beast blasphemes God and his dwelling. Revelation 11 reminds us of that. What is blasphemy here? It means to be sluggish or slow to call something good that is really good. Think about this. And slow to identify what is truly bad. That is evil. Blasphemy switches. Now, if you ever wondered what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, when we talk about the unpardonable sin, that's this is defining that for us. It switches right for wrong and wrong for right. And calls what God disapproves, that which is right. And exchanges the truth of God for a lie, i.e. Romans 1. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. He's turning the law of God on its head and extolling the opposite. That's what blasphemy of God is. It is celebrating that which is evil, taking pleasure not just in the evil itself, but those. this is the picture of the beast. And there is a, a picture of apparent victory over the church. It is allowed to make war on the saints. This is really what troubled Daniel as he saw the vision. And this is what, as I study this and, and I, as I look at this, would trouble me. <clears throat> the beast is allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. But is that conquering total and final? Is it what it seems to be? Remember the, th the, the two witnesses? Their bodies were slain in the street. The world threw a party, celebrated, and they were, they were resurrected. There is an apparent victory over the church that is celebrated. And then I want you to see there's a universalism of authority. There's nothing in Scripture, and one of the things that... that that is common in eschatology is that there's going to be one world government. Have you heard that? We've seen presidents say the new world order. Um, what do we make of that? Well, notice, I want you to see this. This is important. There is a universalism of authority portrayed here by the beast. It says, and authority was given it over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Who is it excluding there? But what nation is excluded? What nation does the beast not exercise authority over? You say, well, the American, the United States of America, we're a constitutional republic. No. Guys, if you think for a second that our government is not corrupted and part of this world system, now we have... We have been immensely blessed as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to live in a country where I can obey the Ten Commandments of God and not be at odds with my government. 
But those days are, are quickly receding into history. If you look at the state, it's corrupt. They bear the sword, but the sword has been corrupted. Who does the beast? What government can we look at anywhere on the face of the planet that has not been corrupted? How about how about the children of Israel? They said we, we're going to have we're going to set up a kingship, and what did God say? It's going to be corrupted. The only government that was ever on the face of the planet that was not corrupted is when the Lord led the children of Israel in the wilderness by cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And as soon as the Israelites said, we want to be like the rest of the world, guess what? Their government was corrupted. And we see it. It's one king after another. This king did what was evil in the sight of God and caused the nation to disobey and be led into idolatry. We see it. The corruption is apparent. And you think, well, is there going to be one world government? I don't think so. And the reason I say that is we can't get along. What did it say? The wicked are like the troubled sea, constantly tossing its mire in his muck. There is no peace to the wicked, God says. How is there going to be one world government? Now, my point to say that is there already is. There really already is. There is a centralized power. There is a consolidation of power under the dragon that is already governing over the governments, the state of, there's a universalism of authority. Whether that ends up being a quote unquote, one world government under the United Nations, the United Nations is so inept, they can't govern themselves out of a paper bag. There is an ineptitude to human government, but under the enemy, under the wicked one, he's been given authority. All of these kingdoms fall under his umbrella. And how do, these, how do these kingdoms treat the church? How do they treat the church? There are periods in, of time where we can look back and say there have been respites of quietness and peace. And why, why is it that scripture says we're to pray for those who are in authority? That you may live what? A quiet and peaceable life. We do not embrace and look forward to the persecution of the sword. But, but God is telling us that's what you can expect. That is the norm. That is life under the beast. So how does this apply to us? Point B, as we wrap up this morning, how does this apply to us? There is encouragement for the saints here. But the question is, who can possibly endure the beast? The worshipers, worshipers of the beast ask the question, who, who can fight against the beast? What we worship is incomparable, unconquerable. The Lord Jesus says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to, to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must be slain. Here's a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. What should encourage us? When Daniel had the vision of the four beasts, it troubled him. In verse 15 of Daniel 7, it says, As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. What was Daniel alarmed by? He had a bad dream. 
what Daniel was really alarmed by was that he was going to wage war. The beasts were going to wage war against the saints. And in the book of Daniel, it says, and it's given to him to wear out the saints. This troubled Daniel. And humanly speaking, it, it, it can trouble us, can it? Now, we can build an eschatological framework that says, I'm not here for this. I'm raptured out. It's not here, guys. It's just not here. He is to make war with the saints. What did Daniel take solace in? Well, the promise of the everlasting kingdom. The kingdom that would crush the four beasts. If Daniel took solace in that, so should we. We should find encouragement in the fact that though the beast, though the systems of this world seem to be victorious for a time, the kingdom of God will crush it. And the kingdom of God is growing even as we speak. There are two interpretations of this verse, verse 10, verses 9 and 10. One is that there will be a recompense to the bearer of the sword who perverts his authority. If, if anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must be slain. Remember Jesus told um, Peter to put up the sword. He that lives by the sword, what? Will die by the sword. What is what is Jesus telling Peter? Don't disarm. He didn't tell, by the way, he, Jesus did not tell Peter to disarm. He said, put your sword back in its place. What you're doing with pulling it out to defend me and cut off the ear of, of the Roman soldier is not how you defend the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, I could have called 10,000 angels to defend me if this was a war on the physical realm, but it's not. But he that lives by the sword will die by the sword. But this is a picture of judgment that will be brought against those who pervert the use of the sword, pervert the authority of the sword. What did Jesus or what does Paul say in Romans 13 regarding the proper use of the sword? The sword is to punish who? Wicked. The wicked. If the sword is being used to punish the righteous, we have a problem. Don't think for a second that wicked, evil leaders, though appointed to be in those roles, will not be punished for their abuse of power and their abuse of authority. They will absolutely be brought to justice. But secondly, there's a picture here that, that we need to see. The sovereign election of grace will have the final say, not the beast. We talked this morning about the covenant. Why was Israel kept? And the scripture says, I have reserved to myself what? 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. The entire nation went into idolatry except for those whom the Lord kept. I have reserved to myself a remnant according to what? The election of grace. But the point of, of verse 10 is also this. The sovereign election of grace will have the final say, not the beast. All who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name, listen to this. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life. What is that? What is the book of life? It's God's covenant. If you are a child of God, your name was written in his book in the blood of the lamb as its ink and sealed for eternity. There is not a beast 
walking this planet that can change that. Revelation 3, 5 and 6, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Then it says, here is the endurance and patience of the saints, a call for it. The picture here is this is what endurance looks like. God has not called us. Remember, the weapons of our warfare are what? Spiritual. This is a spiritual battle. Now, it has manifestations in the physical world and wicked governments, those who bear the sword in a perverse way. But how has God called us to endure? I want you to see, first of all, that the church hears and heeds the warnings. It says, they that have ears to hear. Romans 11, 1 through 10 talks in detail about that. The disciples asked Jesus in Matthew chapter 13, why do you speak to them in parables? That is the crowds. He said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom, but to them it has not been given. In verse 16 of Matthew 13, he says, but blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. I want you to see that those whom the Lord has called, those whom the Lord has elected, will heed the warning. The book of Revelation is written to those who have ears to hear and those who have eyes to see. That is the elect of God, those who are called, those who are regenerate. But the church will patiently endure. And how does she do that? She does it by faith. The just live how? By faith. The church will patiently endure because he sustains in the wilderness. This is the painful part, though. In the Greek, it's the word hypomune. And it means to remain under. How does the church remain under the abuse of the beast? How? Have you thought about it? We have such a different perspective here in the United States. We came to church this morning. We do not hide it. We don't sneak in the door. We don't sneak out the back door so that our neighbors don't see us and report us. But what if you're a Christian in China? What if you're a believer in China? Do you go to church on Sunday morning in the broad daylight? We can't even fathom that. They meet in secret churches. Because if you're not part of the state-sanctioned church, you're illegal. You can be imprisoned. Same in North Korea. Same, be a Christian in in the Gaza Strip today. We, We have such a different perspective from what the rest of the world looks like. But how do they remain under? How do they endure while they're under the abuse of the beast? There's only one answer. It's not because they're great Christians. They're spiritually superior. They're kept by the grace of God. When the picture of the woman being sustained in the wilderness, that's God's provision in a barren land. Living under the beast is living in a barren land. How are we to be sustained? God sustains his church. That's the picture. That's the encouragement for the church. Jesus said in John 16, 33, and we'll close with this. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. 
That is quietness or rest. In the world, you will have what? You're going to have persecution, tribulation. The word in the Greek is slipsis. I listened to, you probably remember this, brother, because you shared me the link. I listened to a message this morning in, in 1 Thessalonians um, from our brother Earl. And he used, he references the Greek word thalipsis, and it comes up in, in John 16, 33. And he says, when I was studying Greek, you know how I remembered the word thalipsis, which means tribulation? He said, it, it is any circumstance in life that flips us. Flipsis, flips us. I'm like, well, I'll never forget that now. Amen. But the picture of Philipsis is persecution, affliction, distress, tribulation, anything that turns our worlds upside down. Jesus said, in this life, you will be raptured out. No, in this life, you will have tribulation. But... Take heart. It says take heart in the ESV. In the King James Version, it says what? I grew up memorizing the, K, the King James Version. So it says be of good cheer. In the ESV, it says take heart. It means to be courageous. Why? Why should you take heart? Why should you be of good cheer? Why should you be courageous? Jesus says because I have overcome the world. The Christian is sustained in the wilderness, in tribulation, not because of something we do. The endurance of the saints is not to exalt the, the, the staying power of the church. The endurance of the saints is to exalt the mighty hand of God who keeps the church under tribulation. Be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. I have prevailed. I have conquered. I am victorious. I have subdued. And the beast is nothing for the Lord Jesus. The beast will be destroyed. But it's important for us to know about it now. Spurgeon said, and I'll, I'll stop with this. Spurgeon said, quote, cheer up now, you faint-hearted warrior. Not only has Christ traveled this road, but he has defeated your enemies cheer up you faint-hearted warrior let's pray heavenly father thank you for your word thank you for the reminder of of the reality of spiritual warfare that we face in this life thank you for reminding us that this world is not a friend of yours and it's not a friend of ours Friendship with this world is enmity against you, and we see why. Because this world is at odds with you. This unregenerate, wicked world is at odds with the kingdom of God. And those who worship the beast worship what they see as their king. But you have called your people out of this kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We have a new Lord. We have a new king. And his name is Jesus. And we thank you for the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus, the shed blood of the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. We thank you for sealing us eternally so that the worst that the devil can do to us is put us in your presence earlier than we think we should go. We praise you that you have conquered death and hell and given us victory over sin. We worship you for that. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.